Learn to code, build apps, inspire the next generation. Welcome to the Swift App School podcast, where we are empowering the next generation of app developers. I'm Charles Long, co-founder of Swift App School. And I'm Bob Williams, co-founder of Swift App School. All right, well, welcome to season two, episode one of the Swift App School podcast. Hey, Charles, are you doing all right? Yes, I'm doing all right. It's been a while, hasn't it? It has been. We've had the holidays and a break from the podcast. So we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about what's new with Swift App School. We've got a lot of new stuff like online classes and 2023 summer app camp coming the last week of June. We've got major advancements in AI, artificial intelligence, including our thoughts on chat GPT. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to talk about Apple in the news, Apple's latest device releases, and Apple's App Store changes. And there's a new app now that was announced today. And then something really cool at the end, as always. So, holidays and break from the podcast. How was your Thanksgiving? Isn't that the last time we did this? <laughs> yeah, so that was like mid-November, I think, was our yeah. last podcast. So I feel like we're going way back in the past to talk about things we missed. I will say that we did take a break from the podcast, not on purpose, but we decided to take advantage of the opportunity and make it a break. So with Thanksgiving, obviously I ate too much food that I didn't need, but that's kind of par for the course. Of course. And I had a birthday too, so almost a big one. Next year's the big five zero. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> Christmas. Did you get any techie gifts over Christmas? Well, sort of. Sometimes, you know, when you're an adult, you decide to just buy something, and mm-hmm. uh, it's not a surprise anymore. Well, typically, yep. I feel like that happens when it's pretty expensive. And so, I got a gift, but I got it before Christmas, actually, and my wife probably wanted me to call this Christmas holiday, birthday, Father's Day, maybe even roll into the next year because it was a (laughs) pretty expensive gift. But I wanted a widescreen monitor and I had two 27-inch monitors at one time and I got rid of one of the monitors and kind of missed that real estate. So I've been eyeballing some of the widescreens and I was undecided between like 34, 38 or larger. And ultimately, long story short, I finally settled on the Samsung 49-inch Odyssey Neo G9 gaming monitor. So that sounds impressive. Yeah, so that monitor is typically upwards of $2,300 or more. And they dropped it down to like $1,499. Yep. And uh, I was looking at some monitors that were like $1,000. And ultimately decided, why am I going to spend $1,000 or $1,200 for like a 38-inch widescreen that weren't going to meet my expectations? So I ended up buying this one. You know, it's kind of like you see something on sale. You feel like you have to buy it. (laughs) That sounds familiar. Yeah, so I ended up buying that. And again, I don't think I'll get another gift for the next year. But I'm enjoying it because it's 49 inches and... They say that it's nice to have a widescreen because you don't have the bezel for two monitors in the middle. However, what I realize is it's actually even better than that because you can have three full screen apps at the same time, not just two. Okay. So, wow. I'm enjoying it. It's got a pretty steep curve. It's a curved widescreen. And, yeah. you know, it, it, the curve helps that you don't have to like turn your head completely. It's so immersive. Yeah. Um, I won't go through all the specs right now, but if you go look up the Samsung Odyssey Neo G9, then you can see all the specs on it. It's pretty cool. What about you? Well, yeah, speaking of good deals, they had a good, I guess it was a Black Friday sale for the AirPods Pro. So I hinted to my wife, I was like, that would be a great birthday gift. And <laughs> and all of a sudden it showed up. So. That was that was kind of like birthday and Christmas combined almost. Plus, I got a wireless charger for my watch and phone. So, yeah, I had some good tech gifts over Christmas and birthday. But, yeah, the AirPods Pro, I've been trying to resist getting AirPods for so long. But now that I'm, like, walking all the time in the mornings and I use them all the time, 
for my morning walks and they're just so nice so much nicer than the beats because i can hear the transparency like i didn't know what people were talking about when they were talking about the transparency mode and to me that's the main reason i wanted it is just to like listen to podcasts listen to music and still be able to hear the outside world like when i'm walking around and hear traffic and things like that so it was more of a safety feature and to motivate me just to walk more. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm loving those. Should have gotten them a long time ago. And, well, and they also, like, have really good battery life compared to the older models, from what I'm hearing. Because I've heard people just talk about how the battery just dies all the time. And mine have not really died much. I mean, I, I charge them every once in a while, but they've held their charge. Having that case helps. But, yeah. I'm laughing because you said yours help you walk more. Yeah. <laughs> Mine hasn't helped me walk anymore. <laughs> well, I also read a book about uh, habits, like building in healthy habits into your lifestyle. I think it's called like Atomic Habits. I've forgotten the name of the author. It was a really good book. I'll have to put that in the show notes, but it was good and got me back on my walking routine, which I had kind of neglected for a while. And then, yeah, it was just nice to kind of take a break just during the holidays and not have to worry about stressing over recording a podcast. (laughs) So sometimes it's nice to have a little downtime. I agree. I think the podcast has really been beneficial and will continue to help our audience to understand our background and our mission. And it's really nice to share the things we're passionate about and the topics that we spend a lot of time reading over and sharing with each other. We can share with other people. I think this year we are looking to improve upon the podcast, maybe have a few more guests on the show and to continue to go back to our roots and talk about some coding concepts that most people might not understand, but also bringing the latest in Apple news to the channel as we have done in the past. I like the idea of having more guests and we've talked about having our teacher assistants and some former students on who are now helping us build tutorials. So I think we're going to do that soon. It would be nice to do that. I guess the other reason why we haven't had a podcast in a while is that we've started these online classes with Swift App School's newest venture. Like you were saying, it's the next step in our mission. And we're wanting to give back and we're wanting to offer more scholarships. And the way that you do that is by breaking down the barrier yet again and allowing people to learn Swift and to learn Xcode and not have to have a Mac, not have to have expensive device. All they need is a browser so they can be on a Chromebook and they can learn with us. And that's something that we've just started testing and we're hoping to offer more classes very soon. You talk about breaking the barrier. And one of the things that was really important is that we figure out some way that we could approach anyone and not have them worry about the fact that they don't have a Mac computer. As you mentioned, we've used a few different platforms in the past for remote desktop, and we wanted to make this simple. We didn't want to have users installing software, and we didn't want users to have to figure out some complicated onboarding method in order to get access to our machines. So we partnered with Mac Stadium. So I'd like to give a shout out to Mac Stadium for their solutions that they provide that allow us to connect to their Mac data center in the cloud. The user just needs a browser, and so we can talk to students, and if they have a Chromebook, if they have a Mac that's older, if they have a PC, doesn't matter. They're able to connect to our platform. So we're very thankful for Mac Stadium and their team for helping us work through some of our technical challenges. I think the feeling is mutual. We're helping them with their new product. So we appreciate their support, and we look forward to a long-term partnership with them. Yeah, they've been really great. They've got some great developers and a really good team, and they've helped us a lot, and we really are very appreciative of all that they've done to help us get started in these online classes. We told them our story. I mean, back in 2020 when we founded, we were going to do our first app camp in person again like we had you know, in the past at previous places, and when we started, we just couldn't because of COVID, and, and so we had to go online, and it was much different than it is now we were just using zoom and really didn't have a way to to even offer that you know support the way we wanted to 
for the students. And, you know, we used some software that was out there. We won't name the Mac Stadium competitor, but we used some other software that was, was out there and it, and it worked okay. But, you know, having learned through that and, and having taught that another year with a different software, I think we've learned a lot over the years and how to, how to do online classes the right way. And it's, it's really coming together nicely. And, we're, it's interesting because we just finished our class today, finished the session, and, and we're both like relearning UI kit again because we're kind of loosely following Apple's curriculum. There were some things in there, just speaking about Apple's curriculum, that were a little too advanced for beginners. So we're we're reworking it because we've we've got so much experience teaching beginners that we know kind of how the pacing should be. But it's been fun to kind of relearn UI kit or to you know, it's not like I've forgotten a lot, but it's just nice to kind of go back and go, oh yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> I don't know. How do you, how do you feel about that? Yes. I feel like we've stayed in Swift UI land so long yeah. over the last couple of years and not even touched UI kit uh-huh. and going back and trying to refresh our brain. It's been a little bit of an adjustment because you get out of the mindset that like Swift UI, you basically do declarative design, right? Mm-hmm. You don't really have to tell every specific screen what to look like. And going back into the more design focused with interface builder, things we've talked about in past, you know, in the last season, it's definitely putting a different hat on mm-hmm. and re-exercising a muscle that's been weak for a while. <laughs> yeah. So it's good exercise for us though, but I'm, I'm yeah. enjoying it and I'm feeling more comfortable every lesson that we teach. And it's something obviously we're doing at night because we still have day jobs. So yeah, <laughs> it's, it's been interesting trying to get home and get your brain kind of switched over to coding mode. But yeah. ultimately we want to give back. And with our limitation of time, this is the next step. And this is how we feel like we can bridge that gap Yeah, and get it to the next step. For all you developers out there that are listening, it is kind of fun to like, to go back and, and use storyboards again when we've been in the Swift UI world for so long now. There are some things in storyboards that I kind of miss. I think we kind of talked about that. Just having that visual element where you can kind of look at several different views at once and view controllers and kind of how they're... It's nice to kind of have that overview. And I feel like Apple's going to bring that back a little bit in probably the next couple of iterations. But I also love Swift UI. I've been hearing more and more podcasts lately about people mixing the Swift UI and UI kit and it kind of makes me want to do that again <laughs> so or do more of that because right now they kind of still in my mind live in separate worlds you know you've got Swift UI either you're all in a Swift UI or you're all in on UI kit and really I mean they're designed to to mix together and there's a lot of if you the more complicated your app gets the more you're probably going to have to mix them together you know, you're not going to be able right now to do everything in Swift UI if it, as it gets more complicated. So there are just some things that doesn't support you. Well, also with Swift UI being the newer technology UI kit, having been around for so long, yeah. there's so many apps that are still running. I mean, all the apps that were, you know, big social media apps and other things that are built with a large audience, it's going to take them time to transfer everything over to Swift UI, which is a lot easier to, you know, make your individual design and share code. That's great, but it's going to take some time to kind of migrate everything over to the new platforms. It's great that they made it where you can have an older UI kit app and just slowly integrate components of Swift UI into it so that you can make that migration clean. Yep. So for people out there wondering, like I want to start doing iOS development, which one should I learn? Right now you need to learn both. That's uh, right. you could, you could start out with one or the other, but if you learn UI kit, you're going to find out pretty quickly that Swift UI is going to save you a lot of time on developing apps. And then if you start out with Swift UI, you're going to realize that there's some things you're limited on that haven't been ported over yet, but you're also going to notice that there's a lot of older apps. If you're on some team, that they may require you to migrate an app. And if you don't know UI kit, then you're kind of stuck. So to be attractive to the market, someone jumping in right now, wanting to get their feet wet, start out with Swift UI, but then go back and kind of learn some of the basics online so that you can get some of that experience and build a few basic apps. Obviously when it comes to layout, 
and auto layout. That's a whole other topic we've gone <laughs> we through want, before. We want to talk about auto layout. Yeah, right go now. back and listen to what our old <laughs> podcast episodes about UI kit versus Swift UI. But yeah, anyway, you know, that's what our experience has been with the online classes and we're enjoying it. We got students that are eager to learn and it's amazing to see how they started primarily with a little bit of coding background because these students had gone through our app camp. Mm-hmm. But for them to get a more hands-on approach and a, maybe a slower pace to learn the app development portion just in the UI and to get a better understanding of how apps are built. Now to see them understanding how to make scroll view and tab views and other things, like I feel like they have a better grasp of the app development process than they did before. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's like table view controller. How many table view controllers have we made over the years? Tons. But it's like, when's the last time you made a table view controller? It's, it had been a while, you know, after mm-hmm. especially after switching to Swift UI. So going back, it's like, wait a minute, which order is this supposed to be in? <laughs> like, are we, are we putting the code in the cell or are we putting the code in the table view controller? <laughs> we had to remember that, like, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is the way you do it. Yeah, there are some headaches that we had forgotten about. But also, we know a lot about, like, on the storyboard side, all the errors that can go wrong, all the pitfalls that stop you dead in your tracks if you're a new beginner, and just you'll give up if you don't have somebody helping you through it. So I think that's one of the things that we really like to see is that we like to help our beginner students get through those hurdles. So then, once they're on the other side, they can kind of be off and running and they can go to other resources like, you know, Paul Hudson or Sean Allen or others code with Chris. I mean, there are all kinds of great developers out there teaching more advanced topics, Ray Wenderlich. So you mean code echo and code echo. Yeah. The code echo. Sorry. <laughs> they changed their name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, tons of great developers out there and shout outs to all of them. But anyway, then there's the Stanford videos too. I mean, but, you know, to start out with a Stanford video, which is what we did, that's kind of hard. It would have been a lot easier if we'd had some other resource for true beginners. That's really the bridge we're trying to cross and uh, just to add to all these other great developers out there. I will say that we do have the summer app camp coming again for in-person, and that's here in Asheville, North Carolina. It's going to be at the Hatch Innovation Hub. Shout out to Hatch Innovation Hub. They've been great to work with us and partner and they're offering scholarships again thanks to donors and we are really excited about that opportunity so if you know of some need-based scholars that are interested in learning this send them to our website swiftappschool.com and they can sign up and get a scholarship hopefully but we're we're just thrilled to to be teaching this again in person it's a really great opportunity and it is the week of june the 26th through the 30th downtown Asheville. And speaking of the future app development, one major advancement in artificial intelligence is now at the forefront. We've just witnessed modern-day AI. I'm going to ask Charles to talk about his history of studying AI because he has quite a history, and I think he's got a cool story about it. Yes, so one of the most difficult parts of talking about AI is the fact that this is sort of my soapbox. And I have collected notes forever, knowing that at some point we're going to talk about it. (laughs) I will just briefly talk about my history. And then as we go forward in future episodes, I'll sprinkle in other things that I've learned. But I think it's important for people to understand what has happened and how transformative this is, because there's a major shift in what's happening. and, And I think it's catching the world by storm. A lot of people are kind of freaked out about what's happening. And so first I'm going to go back and say, that when I was in high school, I was interested in artificial intelligence. And obviously I grew up in an era where the Terminator was a really popular movie and people were afraid that when technology was so advanced that it would, you know, become more sentient or aware of itself and it would actually learn things and it would have the ability to make its own decisions without us training it, that it would take over the world. And so that's obviously been portrayed by movies forever. Well, when I was in school, 
you know, I was generally interested in that and how could that possibly happen? And I was relieved to find out that artificial intelligence doesn't work that way. At least it didn't then. (laughs) (laughs) So at that time, my past understanding was that a computer is only as smart as the developer. So I knew that what's put into the computer is what comes out of the computer. That really hasn't changed. But at that time, the misconception about it was that the software is only as smart as the developer. So if the developer isn't smart enough to program it to do anything malicious, then it can't. Or if the developer is only intelligent to write the code in a certain way, that's all the computer can do. And that's what we knew growing up. And so I decided I was going to do my senior report in high school on artificial intelligence. I was able to demonstrate it with tic-tac-toe. So I had three levels. I had easy, medium, hard, and we had to give a report. So I obviously did some research and gave a talk. It was like an eight to 10 minute talk and then a few minutes of a demo. And so I actually hauled in my three and a half foot tall computer case because <laughs> I had this monstrosity at home. Like people walked in there like, what is that? So I actually brought that to school and I gave my report and I had programmed in Pascal a tic-tac-toe artificially intelligent system. So level one was basically all random. It didn't have any type of intelligence at all. So the user could easily win. Level two was medium. And so it had certain rules programmed in so they would understand how to either win when it was obviously like it actually had a path towards winning, Hmm. but wouldn't always anticipate the user, you know, tricking it into two paths of winning in tic-tac-toe. And then the hard would either win every time or cat. There was Mm. no way for it to lose, period. Yeah. (laughs) I learned a lot about tic-tac-toe actually programming this game. I've gotten to where I can (laughs) cat every single game or win every game. (laughs) Yeah. But I had to program every single possibility for that to happen. It took two weeks for me to constantly write code in order to write this. So it gave me a lot of, Hmm. you know, perspective in terms of how AI was developed back then because you had to really open your mind and think what are all the possibilities well it doesn't work that way anymore mm-hmm. modern day ai is mind-blowing it's amazing so it's not predetermined as opposed to the ai back in my day so really i didn't understand how things had changed and i know like basically in the 2000s you heard a lot about ibm watson you remember hearing about that Oh yeah. And I, and I didn't know what it was. I knew IBM kind of sold off their computer division to Lenovo. And I was like, why did they do that? It's their moneymaker. Well, they were working on AI and data cloud systems and whatnot. So that's what they were doing. That's more lucrative financially for them. Wouldn't IBM Watson, wasn't it featured on Jeopardy or something at one point? Yes, it was. And that was the first time I, like, I was thinking how many possibilities do they have to program to get it to work? Mm -hmm. I didn't understand that even then AI was progressing pretty significantly. And like, I like to say 2016 when we were at Apple's WWDC or worldwide developers conference, and we started learning about what Apple was doing with it because otherwise like we were deep in Apple. And so at that point I wasn't really keeping up with what other people were doing with AI. So when Apple Mm -hmm. started talking about models and training models, like I started to understand something that I never understood before, which is with all the processing power they have today, you can feed the computer information and it can basically do what a baby does, which is Mm -hmm. you can feed it thousands of pictures of flowers, which is basically how humans learn. A baby doesn't know what a flower is, but as soon as a parent shows it a picture of a flower and takes it outside and they see a flower, they do mentally start to develop characteristics in their brain that helps them recognize what it is based on sight, sometimes touch, shape, color. So they use all their different senses to start to pull together what a flower actually looks like. So that's the same thing you do with computers. You feed it data over time and it starts to develop an algorithm where it recognizes a flower by shapes, colors. It can't smell, obviously can't touch but it uses lots of visual cues and lots of shapes. And once you feed it, you tell it what it is. So you could feed it incorrectly. You could feed it millions of flowers and say, that's a cat and it would be wrong. 
obviously, but that's how the model system works. That's where you get into like training various models. And so you have to train the AI to do exactly what you want. This has gone off the rails, which we'll talk about later. <laughs> well, and even at the time back in 2016, they were introducing, there were some models that Apple had created and then there were other models that Google had created and others that you could import into your apps. So that was pretty cool. Even in the very beginning of machine learning, they were doing that. So uh, I remember being fascinated by that. I didn't really understand under the hood how it worked, but I, I could get the gist of, yeah, you feed it a bunch of pictures of flowers and <laughs> all of a sudden it your app knows which flowers which. Right. And one of the more hands-on experiences I had was, I think it was 2017, did you go to the conference and I went to the alt conference? Yeah, I think, I think so. it was. Yeah, I think I so. Think, that sounds okay. Right. I think it was 2017. Yep. And I went to three sessions by IBM, which yeah. I was intrigued because the, the previous year, like I said, 2016, I was at the Apple conference learning about the models and machine learning. And so I was more interested. And that was a real eye opener because we had three sessions. And one of the sessions was how to create a chat bot where you could basically have an assistant where users could call a call center or something like that. And it would have all the trees of information it needed to answer the questions without a user, without a human involved. Hmm. So it was really cool. And then I think we did another one where it had pictures that we fed it and it could use that information to like determine whether there was, I guess a good scenario would be if you wanted to create a drone that would recognize fire damaged forests or whatever, you feed it a constant stream of damaged woods. Mm-hmm. And then when you send the drone off with that information, it can recognize forest fires and you could take some action on that. So that, yeah. those sort of things. Yeah, it was really intriguing. I, cool. I enjoyed that. But, you know, that was where I started realizing. So how are they like, I understand it's machine learning. So things had changed where it was, it was still the fact that you're feeding it information and it's only as smart as what it's fed. But that made me think about the danger of what you're feeding and how it's able to take that and create an algorithm of learning. Mm -hmm. This is where the learning of machine learning comes in because it takes what it understands and starts to learn off of that concept. So what's happened in some of these AIs that have been released in the last 10 years, some of them have been unleashed on learning the internet and instantly became racist mm -hmm. or instantly they are creating their own language. And so they had to take them offline Two AI systems, learning a language and having to be taken down. Mm. <laughs> that's crazy. And so yeah. that's where the danger comes in. But before we jump into that rabbit hole, I'm going to go back and talk about some of the use cases that are coming on the scene that have kind of people excited and nervous at the same time because basically open AI has come out recently with their products within the last five years and they have DALI 2 which is a visual search AI so you can type in something that doesn't exist and it'll actually create it based mm. on what it understands off of photography and then of course the big one chat GPT which we're going to talk about in a minute and then there's Midjourney, which is also another AI that's used to generate artwork based on the prompts that you give it. Stable Diffusion is another one. So these are the most popular ones that people are talking about because now artists are really nervous that people can just generate whatever artwork they want based yeah. off of the history that it understands. Like it's creating artwork out of nothing. So you can say, I need, you can say something like, I need a snowman that's smoking a cigar and riding on a horse and it'll actually create it. <laughs> yeah. And I think I've heard of some cases where the artists like didn't want to share or give anyone the right to use their artwork, but then their artwork ended up in some of these cases where they were like taking part of the artist's artwork that was really not <laughs> permissible to share. And it's getting shared anyway, just due to the nature of the beast. So yeah, just something to be concerned about there if you're an artist and wanted to protect <laughs> your own work so i agree and also you have to be careful if you're using any of the generated content in commercial products mm -hmm. because you're thinking that oh well i can just tell it to generate this artwork and i can throw it in my game or my app and you have to be careful about that you have to be mindful that some of what it's pulling could potentially come from a valid picture so these are the new 
challenges that we're facing for dealing with this new AI. <laughs> yes, I'm sure the attorneys are just lining up <laughs> right now on some of these cases. So let's talking about Chat GPT since that's such a hot topic. What does that stand for? Yeah, so Chat GPT, generative pre-trained transformer, and I okay. know that's like, well, what does that mean? Like I said, OpenAI, for people that don't know, they are an AI company. Their beginnings go back to Elon Musk and some others that said, you know, artificial intelligence is potentially dangerous. And the danger is that if all the big companies have access to the AI and none of the users or none of us have access to it, then you do end up with a Skynet situation. You do end up where only the big companies own the technology and can create something that's dangerous. We have to succumb to whatever the AI is doing. And we already see how technology and big companies are changing our lives and control so much of our lives. Think of like Facebook and Snapchat and those sort of things and how they affect our lives. Imagine an AI that can basically learn and make decisions, how that can affect humanity. And so in good faith, Elon Musk put lots of money into open AI so that it would be open and available to all. And his thought is we don't want the AI to become so smart that humans can't keep up with the advancement of technology. So in the beginning, there was good intentions. However, he since kind of backed away from it because they were dangled a carrot called money <laughs> and have gone commercial. So what happened is over the past few years, they've advanced it with lots of funding. And we'll talk about that in a second. But basically, ChatGPT is an AI-driven chatbot, and it was launched by OpenAI in November 2022. So out of nowhere, they basically created a chat system that you could sign up for, and you could basically type in whatever you want, and it's using a natural language model. So they fed it pretty much all the language models that it could find over the past however many years on the internet, up through 20, 2020, 2021 maybe. And essentially it can generate responses based on that. It is trained using reinforcement learning from human feedback. And a technical portion of this is it's built on top of OpenAI's GPT 3.5 family of large language models and it's fine-tuned with both supervised and reinforced training techniques. So basically what that means is they're on version 3.5 of this. They've been working on this for many years. This version is so advanced, people are having a hard time distinguishing it from human feedback. Hmm. I know there's a lot of discussion around this that's hard to kind of keep bottled up without going too many directions, but <laughs> what's your thoughts about that? Well, I've just been kind of listening to all the commentators out there and reading some articles about it. So there's one article where they quoted Adam Conner. He's the vice president for technology policy at the Center for American Progress. And he essentially said that chat GPT, it's become so popular so quickly because it's one of the first AI technologies of its kind to be available to the public in a way the public can actually understand. So that's kind of the reason why he said it's so big. So it's got a quote here. What is different about GPT is that it is generative, that it creates the kind of outputs in ways that normal human beings understand as opposed to the technology just kind of outputting code or data that only a subset of the population understand, Connor said. Unlike the other search engines like, you know, Google, this chat GPT, it also has been you know, more conversational. It's giving like human-like response and dialogue like instantly. <laughs> I mean, and so, you know, I don't know if you can talk a little bit about what you've done with ChatGPT. I know you've used it a little bit more than I have, but I just got my Bing finally approved so that I can search Bing using ChatGPT. And yeah, I was amazed. Like, it's just like instant response and it's the right answer. And it's, even citing where it came from, New York Times article or some other article, and it, you know, it's like spot on. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, I've used it since November. So yep. As soon as it was announced, I got access to the website and signed up and 
obviously now it's really hard to get in because it's so busy. I mean, I had an article that talked about how fast it grew and I'll reference it in a minute if I can find it. Just the number of users that they accumulated within like five days. Yeah. You can, you can look that up if I don't find it first, but I've used it. Like when I first started on it, I asked it a couple of questions because we have some dietary restrictions in our home. So I said, okay, I'd like a holiday option for gluten and dairy free dessert. And within five seconds, it had 10 choices. And because it's conversational, not only does it give you the answer, it also knows exactly like how to keep a conversation going. So I said, you know, after it showed those 10 results, I said, well, tell me how to make the fourth one. And then it starts citing the recipe for that particular dessert. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I I added a couple other notes in. And actually, I think, honestly, when I started, I I asked it about gluten-free. And then later, I actually threw in, what about some dairy-free options? So it understood that it needed to be gluten-free and dairy-free at that point. And it just revised what answers it gave. And it felt like a person talking to you. And I try my best to break this thing as far as breaking it in, like asking a question and didn't know how to answer. And there's some things that have been blocked just to keep it legal. <laughs> but, but not just a person. It was a very knowledgeable person <laughs> that you're talking to, right? Right. Yeah, it's really crazy <laughs> how fast. I mean, I went from that end of the spectrum to I want to write a React Native app that allows the user to use like stocks and whatever. I mean, I showed it to my wife because she likes day trading and I asked it some kind of day trading question and asked it to write a script to solve a certain problem. And like, she was amazed when she saw it, Mm. (laughs) like what? And then she kind of went down the rabbit hole of, well, there's certain scripts that you can write in the stock market that are at least when you're doing day trading that I don't know, I don't know that, that language or whatever, Mm -hmm. but she was verifying that what it spit out was accurate. Hmm. So, I mean, it knows things from coding to, to like, I mean, everything. <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it. It just knows so many things. And it's not that it knows, it's, it's allowed to pull from all this data is accumulated for all these years and uses natural language to pull the results. And honestly, to me, it's really the next level of search because yeah, we've been using Google to find answers and it returns into result within seconds, but you get millions of results and we'll talk about the danger of that as well. Like, well, in Google, you have to vet yeah. your answers, but you get a lot of results yeah. and you kind of go through and try to decide what's valid, what's not valid and counterpoints against what's true and false. We'll talk about that again, but yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It, it's, it's the way, I think the way to think about chat GPT is that you ought to just think about it as it's another tool in your toolbox. Back when we were coding, we were searching on Google. We were watching the videos. We were going on Stack Overflow and trying to find answers. And we'd get the little green check on Stack Overflow. So we're like, okay, maybe that that's probably right because it's got the green check, which basically means a bunch of other developers have, you know, said, yes, this is the right answer. Now you can kind of go even faster and try chat GPT and sometimes that, and there may be an equivalent green check <laughs> coming for chat GBT soon. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, it's just, just another tool for people to use and you just need to use it responsibly. And I think the companies are, you know, Microsoft is a big investor in this and they are still beta testing. And I feel like, you know, we talked about how Microsoft bought GitHub and then they introduced, we talked about this in a previous episode, the, the GitHub Copilot, which now supports Swift. And I haven't really used that a lot, but, you know, some of this technology is in what is now going to show up in what they've purchased because because they're so integral in using ChatGPT. So they've invested $10 billion in commercializing ChatGPT. $10 billion. Yeah, that's insane. So think about that. And it's in Bing now, and it's going to be in all the Office products as well, so... Well, I think the thing that's taken people by surprise is not only has ChatGPT flooded the news media since November. Yeah. Now what people realize is there's been a master plan all along by Microsoft. They've been quiet about this. Now, yeah. of course, they invested $10 billion <laughs> into OpenAI themselves, which in turn gives them 
majority stake in ChatGPT. Well, once they released ChatGPT to the public, instantly people realized this was a threat to Google. And we'll talk about that in mm-hmm. a little bit as well. But Microsoft was very smart with positioning themselves to take advantage of this. And and I thought, okay, well, they invested money. No big deal. You know, yes, this is revolutionary. This is going to revolutionize search. I think that's great. I think that potentially puts them in competition with Google. But, you know, it's going to take some time. Nope. Like within like two months, Microsoft came out and said, we're integrating this in all our products. <laughs> Office and Bing. I mean, that sound the alarm bells at Google. And again, I'm getting off of something I don't want to talk about yet. I want to, I want to talk about the challenges so far that you've heard. Some of the things that, you know, you might have heard from ChatGPT as far as AI in general, but ChatGPT in this sense. Yeah, I mean, there was a report on NPR just about a week ago about, you know, the reporters were testing its limits and, you know, talking to ChatGPT as if it were human and talking to this chatbot, like, you know, for hours at a time and things that, that Microsoft hadn't really anticipated. And so there were some, you know, misinterpreted information, offensive, false information. There was one case where the chat bot was like professing love to some users and like called some reporter ugly and spread false information. So yeah, there was, there was a great example of, of it going wrong. An associated press reporter, I guess, who was talking to this chat bot for hours, trying it out. And when he suggested that Microsoft pull the plug on chat GBT, the chat bot started calling him ugly and <laughs> said he had bad hair and bad teeth and bad posture <laughs> and, and started talking to him in a hostile tone. So That's I thought hilarious. that was pretty funny. And then, you know, Microsoft said that they, I think it was the vice president said he didn't predict people would treat it like a human. I thought that was kind of interesting. I'm sure they probably did think this would happen, but I'm, I'm not sure why he said that. I just thought that that was a little hard to believe that they didn't think people would. Yeah. Try not to take blame for what's happening right now. Take responsibility. <laughs> yeah. I, should say. I thought, I thought that was a bad answer, but yeah. <laughs> he probably was just talking to a journalist and didn't have a good answer. So he should have just said <laughs> nothing. But anyway, they they have now because of this. I mean, just think about it, though. I mean, of course, the reporters are going to give you the negative slant. They want it to fail. They want to make it look bad. That's what they do best. But and I've been a reporter before, so I can I can talk bad about reporters. But I don't feel like there are any unbiased journalists anymore. Anyway, what you have to keep in mind is that Microsoft and all these companies are beta testing still. I mean, this is still new technology. And so, yes, they didn't think that people would talk to it for hours, but now they've capped the number of consecutive questions that you can ask. And there are certain limits that they're putting on this. And that's what you do when you beta test software and you have to, you know, make it break before you can make it better. So that's exactly what they're doing by releasing a beta version of this. And I think sometimes the journalists are just a little naive or they just want to see it fail. And so when they see it fail, they talk about how it's just all bad and that's not true. So education, we can talk about that. I'll let Charles say a little more about that, but I have some opinions about that as well. Yes. So I still work in education in my day job and I hear a lot of different opinions about this. And I want to say that I've seen a lot of schools online and the school I work at where there's opinions about whether or not we should be using ChatGPT and other AI. And I think that, you know, there's definitely some conflict of understanding. And I think it's also a threat to the way that teachers are educating students. I love Neil deGrasse Tyson's thoughts about AI and education. He made a great point that I've talked about for a long time, which is my observation and and now it's validated. Basically, he said, we value testing and the grade more than we value learning. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you're afraid of AI because now the student can just take the results from chat GPT and answer the question and get it right. So with that being a threat to your teaching, you're going to be opposed to chat GPT or any AI that can generate answers for you when you want the person to memorize it. When the experience is not based on real learning, 
then I can see why you'd be threatened. And I, and I spoke to one teacher last week and I said, your husband was my high school biology teacher and he is not threatened by chat GPT at all because of his teaching style. You can have the book open. You can have whatever you can use the internet. Of course the internet wasn't popular then, but if he, if I'm sure if he was teaching that same class today, he would still say the same thing, which is, I don't care what you use. That doesn't mean you're going to pass my test. Mm -hmm. You, the way that I teach the class (laughs) is going to take everything out of you. You're going to have to prove to me, you really understand this topic. You can't just look it up online and get an answer. So he could care less about chat GBT. I think that's, what's going to make education have to reform itself to adopt to these new standards because their tools are readily accessible. People obviously don't let students use Google or whatever on their tests. It's the same idea here. Mm -hmm. If, If you're based on question answer, then of course you're going to deny or you're going to you're going to resist any technology changes like this. So it's very interesting to see which schools online are saying they're banning it. Like some schools in New York were banning chat GPT. I'm like, well, <laughs> what are they going to do when Microsoft embeds it inside of Office? Like you're going to go back yeah. to pencil and paper testing now <laughs> just to avoid <laughs> using these tools. Let's just back up a second. Microsoft invested $10 billion into this. It's not going away. Right. <laughs> so... So what schools need to think about instead of saying, okay, this is a threat, this is terrible, the sky is falling, they need to think about, okay, what can we do? How, what, what are some advantages of this? How can we use this technology to maybe enhance critical thinking and you know, enhance our students' abilities in the future? What is this going to offer them? I think you need to kind of turn it around and make, instead of being so negative about it, and I've seen so many negative reports, you need to turn it around and find the positive because there are positives in this. I think they're just not seeing it for all of the media, you know, taking it and blowing it out of proportion like they always do. So I challenge the educators out there to just take a breath and and just think about how you can use it in your classroom in a positive way because you can help your students. It is going to be their future. And rather than just banning it across the board, there are other ways to go about it. I think that's a great segue into AI eliminating jobs because yes, that same mindset that some of the teachers have is also the same mindset about jobs. And again, mm-hmm. referencing Neil deGrasse Tyson, there was a podcast where he discussed his thoughts about should we be afraid of AI and the job market? And he said, well, what about the industrial revolution and how people yeah. had to adopt? It's like, well, it's going to eliminate jobs. Yes, it will. Most definitely will. However, it forced people to go into other jobs. Like the industrial revolution didn't put people out of jobs and they didn't, they couldn't work anymore. It just, you just had to be flexible and change what, you know, some of the jobs back then were no longer necessary or they weren't money makers anymore and people figured out a way to adopt and work around it but you can also look at it as an opportunity to create new jobs and i think that's what's going to happen in these cases like there is a job that i think copywriters are in trouble copywriters Mm -hmm. are in trouble they're going to have to go into another career because i mean you can just ask chat gpt to write copy content like i said i'm working on a website for someone and I'm not familiar with the market they're in. I just asked chat GPT, Hey, I'm creating a website for a consulting company. Give me some copy and language for the website for the services they offered. So it's crazy because the person knew what they wanted, but I didn't quite understand what they needed it to say. And they didn't know how to word it on the site. It sounds professional. So I'm, I'm like mm-hmm. amazed at how well this works. But again, as far as jobs, I don't think that it's going to eliminate jobs in a way that people won't have work to do. They're just going to have to change and refocus and maybe programming coding. Like we said, this is one reason why coding is going to be essential. That's a new job that people could take up where they could be involved in the process of creating content for AI or creating AI itself. I mean, these things are open platforms. That's right. And maybe creating AI in ways that we've never even thought possible before. There's so many new fields that are going to come out of this and new careers. So, yes, you will lose some jobs that exist currently, but you'll also 
have several jobs open up that were never even dreamed of before. Just kind of like we're, we're seeing today in, in a lot of fields. So yeah, I'm optimistic on that. I think it's going to create more positives than negatives on the job front. And I think that the other challenge and fear is Skynet. If people are familiar with the Terminator, they feel that the AI is <laughs> going to get so smart that it's going to take over mankind. There is some amount of fear that is warranted. And I think we have to be careful about regulating AI. This is something that Elon Musk talked a lot about. I think there's some things that need to be regulated in terms of ethics. I feel like having technology this advanced without having ethics is going to be a problem because like we said, there was some AI that was created that became racist because it was fed internet. You know, the internet has such negative information that you can feed it that I can understand why they had to pull the plug on it. What people are afraid of is the AI becoming so smart and so intelligent that it can then create its own software to develop things we don't know about. And that's, that's where it gets to a level that's pretty scary. And I don't want to go down a conspiracy theorist <laughs> route, but I will say I just feel like people need to continue to keep ethics as a major part of the AI as it continues to move forward. I think there does need to be some regulation yeah. or it's going to be the wild, wild west using AI. And, and we're going to have people trying to control it in a time where it's too late. So I think that's my, my thought about the fear behind AI. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the government responds to all of this. I think they're going to be leaning on some of these tech companies maybe too much, but I do think there are some companies like Apple that are already kind of doing the right thing and slowly monitoring it. I mean, you know, Apple's got its own sandbox, and so there was a story recently where they blocked this Blue Mail update because it has OpenAI's ChatGPT3 model in it, and it apparently was for all ages and they're saying there was some inappropriate content that could have been filtered out and so they're saying it needed to be a 17 plus app they were arguing about hey this isn't fair well i mean that's the price you pay when you when you sign up to be in apple's app store i mean apple has the right to monitor that kind of stuff and i think you're you're going to have to see more companies step up and draw a line in the sand, no pun intended. But uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I think that's going to have to happen. Well, I think a lot of people are just unleashing to try to get a competitive advantage at the mm -hmm. human's expense. And that's what yeah. I was talking to someone about. And I feel that that's a very dangerous route to take. Yes. And again, this leads right into what other companies are thinking about this. You mentioned Apple, but Google, of course, they sound the alarm bells when they heard about chat GPT going public and in, in terms of open to the public. And so they, I feel out of fear, I think they just decided we're going to buy Bard, which is one of the competitors. I haven't used it, but they quickly responded after November and said they were going to integrate that in their products. And I feel that's a rushed answer. I feel like they're mm -hmm. not taking into consideration what's going to happen when you incorporate this in your products and you haven't vetted they're just reacting and in reacting to competition i feel like that's going to be a dangerous slope as well same thing for meta's facebook who they realize all of a sudden hey this is the future we thought that the metaverse was the future <laughs> so <laughs> maybe they should change their name again <laughs> <laughs> so i saw this article that says after losing billions of dollars on the metaverse mark zuckerberg is launching a top level <laughs> team at meta to develop ai products for whatsapp messenger and instagram so it's like they're all over the place but i mean people are rushing to create ai and they're not looking at the implications of what this is going to cause for us, that's very dangerous. I think that's where the danger is more so yeah. than the AI itself is just companies throwing it out there without vetting it to make sure it's safe for our users. I got it. It's going to be Met AI or it's going to be, <laughs> or maybe it's going to be a Met GPT or something. <laughs> Okay, so let's move on to Apple in the news. We had some launches of some devices since our last podcast. Looks like the Mac Mini was one. You want to talk about the Mac Mini? Yeah, I'll run through these real quick. Basically, the M2 chip they launched last year, I believe they launched it in the fall, 
if I'm not mistaken. So they decided to update the Mac Mini from an M1. Remember the M1 came out and it was in the MacBook Pro, the MacBook Air, and the Mac Mini. Mm -hmm. And the Mac Mini, the difference was it had a fan. I guess the MacBook Air didn't have a fan. MacBook Pro also has a fan. MacBook Pro had a fan. The Mac Mini had a fan. It was just the desktop option. Well, this time around, the Mac Mini was upgraded to an M2 processor, and they also added the M2 Pro as an option. Mm -hmm. And so they're saying it's five times faster than the best-selling Windows laptop, up to 14 times faster than the Intel-based Mac Mini from prior to the M1 days. Is that the first time the Mac Mini has been a pro level? Yes. Yeah, so they didn't really talk about that, but that's a pretty big deal. Well, they did. They did. They basically said the okay. M2 Pro was basically a new addition to the Mac Mini lineup. So now it's actually really good. I mean, the pricing is amazing yeah. for M2 Pro. If you want a pro machine... Like all of a sudden, I feel this puts the Mac Studio in a really weird position, though. We'll talk yeah. about that at some other time. Mm-hmm. But they basically upgraded to Wi-Fi 6E, which is the latest standard of Wi-Fi, super fast, supports up to three displays now. So that's huge. Wow. Because I think it that must, I, I don't know if it was one with the M1 chip. I don't think it supported more than two for sure. I mean, I know supporting three displays is new for Apple on the Mac Mini. And up to 32 gigs and 8 terabytes of storage. So it's got a lot of cool ports on it. The M2 Mac Mini has all the basic ports you would expect. You know, USB, Thunderbolt, two Thunderbolt, one HDMI, headphone jack, Ethernet. But the M2 Pro actually has four Thunderbolt plus HDMI plus two USB-A's. Wow. Headphone jack, Ethernet. I think I might have mentioned that. But yeah, up to 10 gigabit Ethernet. This is a very solid device. And most importantly, if we look at the specs that they have, it comes in priced at $599. So that's great. That's some really aggressive Mm -hmm. pricing for all that power. And you can get it for $499 education. That's for obviously the M2. So just in, you know, an M2 is better than the Intel chips, obviously. Not even the M2 Pro, just Mm -hmm. the M2 Mac Mini. That's a strong computer. You get it four ninety nine education five ninety nine consumer. The M two Pro starts at twelve ninety nine eleven ninety nine education. We might have to consider that for AppCamp in the future. Yeah, if we have if we need stationary machines, yeah. the Mac Mini is a is a no brainer. Mm-hmm. And then like looking at the chips specs themselves, like the M two eight core CPU, ten core GPU. Wow, it's pretty amazing. These numbers are probably twenty thirty percent faster than the last model. I mean, the M ones were already pretty amazing. I'm just amazed at what performance you can get for less than $1,000 these days. Oh, and also the M2 Pro, which has a 10-core CPU, 16-core GPU. That's amazing. Look at the MacBook Pro. There's an M2 and there's an M2 Max. We're looking at both with 12-core CPUs. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah, I mean, the power you're getting in these machines is pretty amazing. I mean, we still have the first generation, or I have the first generation M1 Max, and now they have the M2 Pro, M2 Max. And up to 96 gigabytes unified memory. Oof. So I resisted the urge to buy another computer. Mine has a 32-core GPU and has a maximum 64 gigs. It's, it's amazing for photographers, videographers, anyone on the go that needs mm-hmm. to have a you know a desktop-class machine with all this horsepower. And the price is still the same. I think I'm ready for the 16-inch. All the things that we talked about in previous podcasts that, you know, all the ports, MagSafe still there, headphone jack still there, three Thunderbolt ports, Wi-Fi 6E, again, still the HDMI port and the SD card slot is there. I mean, sound is amazing. Still has the Pro Display XDR screen. So, I mean, this is this is amazing. Still the same great battery life. However, they're advertising that it has like one more hour, I think, on each one, one or two more hours. But I mean, the battery life in my machine is amazing as it is. Yeah, I'm still amazed. Even the M1 is still great compared to Intel's. I don't know how they can continue to improve upon this. I think it's just a great machine. I think it's still the best laptop you can buy for creativity and productivity work. Very robust machine. Still coming in at 19.99 for the 14-inch starting price and 24.99 for the 16-inch starting price. So. 
that was what they released and actually released those products in a video. They didn't have a big keynote. It was just one day I woke up and there was two yeah. new machines. So I was like, oh, wow. Makes you think, hmm, there must be something really big at WWDC this year. Yeah, as long as we've been putting it off, I feel like the augmented reality glasses or mixed reality glasses or something are coming. I don't know, but yeah. I think there's a good chance. Well, moving on, more Apple News saw where they've announced their biggest upgrade to the App Store pricing, adding 700 new price points for developers. That's a pretty big deal. I'm looking at the pricing steps, but, you know, from $0.29 cents to the to $9.99 to $10,000 if you want to support something like a subscription model and charge $10,000, you can do that now. They're also supporting a lot of different currencies so like if you're a japanese game developer if you want to only charge in the japanese currency you can do that hmm. so that's pretty cool i think i think that'll be a big hit with developers and i'm just kind of curious to see how the apps will change their pricing over time yeah i mean I'm looking at this chart as well. So what this tells me is that you don't have to start at 99 cent. You can start at 29 cent and there's 10 cent price steps. So I guess you could have 39 cent or 49 cent or 69 cent or whatever. I mean, very interesting. Yeah. It allows you to have different annual plans and different bundles too, that I think we'll see a lot of kind of creative ways that developers roll out their bundles in the future. I'm wondering what the motivation was behind this change. Do you know? Do you have any idea? I mean, it's nice, but I wonder if there was something that motivated this idea. I think there are a lot of developers that are wanting to charge for different items, maybe different types of storefronts, type apps that are coming out, and that may be part of it. But it may also be tied to, I don't know, you know, they've talked about having more podcasts being charged and... So I'm wondering if that's part of it too, whenever they release that ability for podcasts to charge, maybe mm. that's going to change like with a subscription model. Maybe some podcasts don't want to charge that much. You know, <laughs> they maybe think it's only worth like 29 cents a month. I don't know. <laughs> so hmm. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure, but it'll be interesting to see how these new pricing models pan out. We also had another article today, in fact, where Apple launched a new music app for classical music. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah, so they bought this Primephonic service, and apparently you could search for music not just by a song title or its composer, but by the name of the orchestra that recorded it or the person who conducted it. And now it's going to be part of, I think part of the reason they did this was they're wanting to offer more things for Apple One subscriptions. And they're wanting to, right now, I mean, you get a lot with it, but I think this is one other app that you'll be able to have if you subscribe to the $17 per month Apple One subscription. So not a bad move for Apple. Yeah, there must be another market for this. Like this must bring in another set of people that they weren't able to pull from before or pull in before. I think they're going after, yeah, more baby boomers who are already kind of hooked on the Apple. You know, they've they've got the watch, they've got the phone, but they don't quite want to spend on the subscription model. Maybe they've got the TV service, but they're not doing anything else. So they're trying to entice them to, oh, why don't you just go ahead and pay us $17 a month so that you can get everything, mm. you know, so... I think they ought to offer more cloud storage personally. I think they're kind of cheap on the cloud storage and they could offer a lot more with that if, if you know, through their subscription model. So maybe they'll listen to that. Um, something cool. So have you tried the Apple Music Sing? You told me about it and I started trying it. It was pretty cool. It's like you can just like sing with the lyrics and you don't have to, you can turn down the lyrics and hear yourself sing. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's interesting because my family and I thought we could have karaoke night. Mm -hmm. So essentially Apple Music Sing lets you take your song 
in your Apple Music and click a button and then lower the volume of the singer without lowering the volume of the music in the background. And typically to do this, you have to have some special software or the music has to have it built in. Now, it doesn't matter. This is pretty much, I think, any song, any modern song. Uh, I don't know what the stipulations are. I think is there it? are certain songs that okay. are on the App Store, not not all of them. Okay. Because I, look, I thought all the Apple I music. I looked through and there were some artists that I thought would have it and that they don't. So there may there must hmm. be, it must be on like a lot of the newer mixed songs yeah i mean they've gone back and they've gone back and mixed in some old tunes too i mean it's not brand new but i mean i think you have to be like pretty big name you know for now anyway yeah there's a couple songs my family and i turned on it was just cool to turn the artist down (laughs) and just hear the beat and it's like wow that's pretty cool it's like yeah we need to have karaoke night (laughs) i think that's just that would be fun. I mean, yeah. I think that's definitely what they were going for is to encourage more people to use the karaoke feature and another carrot for people to use Apple Music again. So I, I enjoy playing with it. It's pretty cool. We haven't had the karaoke night yet, but it's on the table. We're going to do it. That sounds good. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Swift App School podcast. You can always find us online at swiftappschool.com. And we're also on social media at Swift App School on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook. Bye, y'all. Goodbye.